word, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 9. And as you're turning to Matthew chapter 9, uh, you may recognize that the title of today's message is Ultimate Authority. And you may think to yourself, well, Pastor, wasn't that the message from last week? And you are the one who your kids will tell on because no, the message from last week was actually Kingdom Authority. And I can see where that might be confusing. But today what I want to talk about is really because 8 and 9 go together with showing Christ's authority. Remember we said that when he was up on the, on the Sermon Mount, that he was preaching as one who had authority. and People were amazed at his level of authority. He comes down off the, off the mount, and he practices then this authority. So if you're in chapter 9, the outline that I gave you last week for 8 and 9 is there's three miracles, and then two descriptions of discipleship, then three miracles, then two descriptions of discipleship, then three miracles. So the bottom line, I'm going to argue, of 8 and 9 is really Christ's ultimate authority, not just kingdom authority, not just worldly authority, not just human authority, not just, again, kingdom authority, but ultimate authority. Jesus possesses this. And as I hope to show you, just a quick recap of last week, we see that this authority is established in several different ways. Now, last week in chapter 8, we saw that this authority was established in grace. Grace to those who would be outcasts. We see this so clearly in the cleansing of the leper, how Jesus reached out and touched him. Didn't have to, but did. This grace that was extended to that leper, an outcast of society. We see grace extended to the centurion, who wasn't a Jew, was a Gentile, right? And Jesus even tells other people, well, I didn't come for the Gentiles, I came for the Jews, and yet here is grace being extended, and not even to the centurion, but to his servants, one of a lowly order of the socioeconomic class. We saw grace extended to Peter's mother-in-law. And remember we talked about women don't have the same standing that they did, or that they do now, and so it was a marginalized character and how grace was extended to Peter's mother-in-law as she went in. But not only is his authority practicing by grace extended, but it's also peace Peace to the disturbed. We see peace to the disturbed in chapter 8 towards the end where he calms the storm. Remember, he has authority over disaster, right? And so Jesus gives peace to those disciples who are even in the boat with him. Maybe some of you this morning need that kind of peace. You know that you're in the boat with Christ, but there's still a storm raging and you need this kind of peace. Well, rest assured, because of his authority, he can grant it, as we saw last week. Or in the last part of chapter 8, before we move into 9, we saw that peace was given to a community and to an individual, but because of that individual, to the community as well. And this is those two men, the story of how Jesus cast out those demons into the pigs. And we may think, yeah, but it wasn't economic peace, but it was so much greater than that, right? They can get pigs back, but these two men in the story of Matthew are the one that's highlighted in other Gospels was continually causing a lack of peace in the community. And so that peace is going to continue into chapter 9, but then we're going to see the final action of Christ's authority, his ultimate authority, which is going to be restoration to the broken, which is what I want to talk about with you today. So we see overall his authority is grace to outcast, peace to those who are disturbed, restoration to the broken. And so I want to end before we pray and get into the message by asking this, who is this then who can speak with such authority? Why does his authority matter? 
And then ultimately, and maybe most importantly, what does that authority mean for you today? Because if we're just having an educational or cognitive talk here, then it's not changing our lives. Christ is meant to be personal. So what does his authority mean for you? So before we jump into chapter 9, will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your text. We thank you for your son, Christ Jesus. We praise you that in your wisdom, you sent him to become as one of us. That he would take on human flesh and live a human life yet without sin. Fully tempted and yet remaining victorious and clean before you. And then through that, as he suffered what we ought, as your wrath was poured out upon him on the cross, as you turned your face away to your only begotten son, that by his wounds, as Isaiah says, we would be healed, by his stripes we would be made new, that by his blood we would be made white as the pure driven snow, our sins would be forgiven, and then you proved him to be an appropriate sacrifice. That three days later he would rise victorious from the grave. And then as he arose the final time, he told his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and in chapter 9 of Matthew, we see Jesus practicing this ultimate authority even before that statement was given. And so as we think about who this must be to have this authority, what this authority, why this matters, and what this means to us, we ask that your spirit would anoint our hearts and our minds that we might not only hear Matthew 9, but might be affected by it. And so it's by your grace we pray. Amen. So if we take chapter 9, I'm not going to hit every single verse of all of chapter 9. We're going to do a little bit of an, of an overview here. But as we look at Jesus' ultimate authority, the first thing that is touched on in this section is his authority over sin. Uh, Jesus is shown here to have ultimate authority over sin. And you can read with me in verses 1 through 8 as he comes in here. And so it's the getting into this boat. Now, this is after chapter 8, obviously, so after he does all these things. They get into this boat. They go over to this other side. Now, remember, this is right after they, these, they cleanse these demoniacs, right? This is why he leaves. Do you, do you remember this? So Jesus heals these two demon-possessed men, casts them out into the pigs. They were afraid, so they sent him away. That's the context. We've got to remember that. They sent him away. Now, where does it say he comes in, in your Bible? He comes over to his own home city. Jesus comes back to where everybody knows him, right? Uh, they know Mary. They probably knew Jesus or uh, Joseph. And so this is Jesus the carpenter who's back on their own territory at this point, okay? He comes back, crosses over, came to his own home city. And behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now you might be thinking, and if you're thinking this, you're right. If you know your Bible, praise God that you do, this is uh, I believe the same story told from a different vantage point, this, the harmonizing of the Gospels, right, as in Mark and in Luke. 
talking about how they were seeking Jesus, but there were so many people there, and rightly so if it's his own home, home city, right? They were waiting for him to come back to continue the miracles that he was doing. And they dig this hole in the roof, right? And they let this guy down for Jesus to, to heal him. That's the scenario that's going on here. So if you, if you have a copy of God's Word and you want to take notes and write in your margins, or if it's a study Bible, you can find that Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5. So they dig this hole in this roof, and they bring them this paralytic laying on this bed. And look at the text where it says here, when, and when Jesus saw their faith, not the man's faith. In fact, it's interesting to me. Now, we don't know, but I, just imagine with me, if you will. Now, and, and this is where you have to do your own, uh, uh, or I have to do my own kind of self-editing, right? So this is, this is John Gruss talking, not Bible talking, all right? So you have to discern between those. But I can just imagine maybe what was going through this paralyzed man's thoughts. Who are these beloved friends of his? Who are they? Was it a surprise to him? Was it one of those things that they caught word that Jesus was back in town, so they just, all four of them, I'm just imagining four, one on each corner of his mat, right? And that these four guys just show up at his house or show up on the street corner where he happens to be begging for a change and that people would take care of him because that was his only means. And they just show up and lift him up. They're like, what are you doing, guys? And they're like, just wait, man, you'll see. I mean, how did this work? I think so often we just read through these Bible stories. Or we'd be, yeah, I've heard the story before where they dig them. And we don't really put ourselves in it and think through it. Be this paralytic man for just a minute. Do you think he believed? Because in the text, it doesn't say he was healed because of his faith. It said that when Jesus saw their faith, these other four friends of his. Isn't that sometimes how God works? We're not even in the middle of looking for him, and then all of a sudden he shows up? Perhaps that's been true in your story. Perhaps you weren't even looking for God, but it was because friends wanted you to find him. Perhaps you weren't even looking for God to do any kind of miracle in your life, and it just happened. You found yourself all of a sudden before the king. This is an amazing story. And so when it says Jesus saw their faith, these men, he said to the paralytic, you're healed. No, he didn't even start there. And again, isn't that what he would have been hoping for? I mean, he knows Jesus. He, he knows the stories of what people are. This is why they have to dig through the roof. Everybody knows about Jesus at this point. Everybody knows Jesus' stories. Everybody hears what's happening. Everybody knows that if you go there, you're about to get healed for something. And this guy comes, finally gets lowered through, which that's weird in and of itself, right? Like, how did they do this? They tied ropes to this guy? Did they know they were going to have to do that? How long did he sit outside before they went and got the ropes and lowered them through? Super crazy story, right? Just read through. Let the, let the story bless you. Read all of the Gospels in Luke 5, Mark 2, and put this together with this thing, and just marinate on these friends' love for this paralytic man. And Jesus, seeing their faith, he says to the paralyzed man, not your healed, not immediately. But Jesus, as a good teacher, uses every opportunity to go deeper. You know, it could be, sometimes in our lives, we struggle through different things. And I love that there's things like this here. Why was this man paralyzed? 
You know, he might have been asking that for years. We don't know how long he was paralyzed for or what disease or disorder he had. And it could be he was paralyzed for this story, for these people. That this man was afflicted not for his own sin, but so that he in his condition might be a beacon to those around him. So Jesus, seeing these men's faith, says to this paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And this is where Jesus starts. So put a pin there as we're going to move on through this. We're going to circle back to that. In verse 3, something else happens. He says, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, Now, this isn't like you and your friend whispering to each other in the ear. This is these scribes are thinking these things in their inward thoughts. They're not saying them outright. I think partially because of fear of the crowd. This is a guy who's serving people, healing people. The last thing you want to do with a mob who's starting to really hold somebody in high esteem is cast them down publicly because you might yourself be carried off the cliff and thrown over with the rest of the pigs or whatever. I know that was on the other side of the lake, but go with me here. You know what I'm going with. And some of these scribes who knew the word said to themselves, this man is blaspheming, speaking falsely against God, lying about God, speaking inappropriately about God. In fact, what they're saying in their own minds, in their own hearts, which we need to understand is, who does this man think he is? They know scripture. No one can forgive sin but God. Who does this Jesus think he is? In fact, in their minds, they're thinking, all right, fame has gone to his head. Jesus has finally lost it. Yes, God's doing these great and miraculous and wonderful things through him, but he's finally crossed the line. Jesus has lost it. He's gone crazy. Only God can forgive sin. And this is what they're saying in their own hearts, their own minds. And then in verse 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, again, proving who he is, proving he doesn't need to hear you speak it. He knows your hearts, which in some degree is very scary if we're all honest with each other. And to another degree is such a blessing. And so he knows their thoughts said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Meaning that the very thought that Jesus doesn't have this authority is by definition evil. That Jesus says this thought of you saying that Jesus is blaspheming, that Jesus is speaking against God, that Jesus doesn't have this power to do this, that thought in and of itself he defines as an evil thought. That's crazy, right? He says you're thinking this in your hearts. He says which is easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven, which nobody can see, Nobody can measure. Nobody can gauge. I can say that all day long, right? It's like Oprah Winfrey, like, you get a car, and you get a car. And nobody really follows up with these people to know if they get a car or whatever. And I don't even know if that happened or if that's just like a YouTube meme. I have no idea. I don't, I don't watch Oprah. But nobody can check this is what I'm saying. It's very easy to say this. It's very easy to tell someone, hey, your sins are forgiven. Or he says, or to say, rise and walk. And so Jesus calls them out. He says, which do you think is easier for somebody to say? He says, but 
so that you may know for sure without the shadow of a doubt, so you can put away those evil thoughts in your heart, so that you can know that the Son of Man has authority, there it is, on earth to forgive sins. Then he speaks again directly to the paralytic. He says, then go ahead, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And so what he's saying is that this is an old kind of argument system. So if you're into logic or philosophy or something, this is a greater than, less than argument, right? So it goes kind of like this. If A is true, then B, right? And so for me to prove to you B, I'm going to say then A is absolute. This is this argument from this to that. So if anyone can say their sins are forgiven, I'm going to prove to you that I have power to do that by doing this lesser miracle, which is just pick your bed up and go home then, man. Again, think about this paralytic who earlier in this day was laying on this bed doing who knows what. Was this his expectation? And so I guess, this is not the point of the sermon, but I guess what I might say to you is if you're going through a struggle right now, do not give up hope. He says, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose and went home. (laughs) And the crowd saw it. They were afraid. Also, not the experience that you would think that people would have. But why are they afraid? Think about it theologically for a minute. Because Jesus just proved, I'm going to forgive this man's sin. And so you know that I can do that, I'm going to make him walk too. I'm going to bring him totally back to health. In fact, not just to health, but health enough. How many of you guys have ever seen somebody who's come out of like a, a, a big cast or they've been sick for a long time and their muscles are just wasted away? They've got to go through years or months of physical therapy to get their strength back. This paralytical man, his muscles would have been atrophied. And he says, just get up and pick up your mat and go home. And the crowd saw it, and they were afraid. And then they, that fear, which Proverbs says, fear is the beginning of wisdom, they quickly turned to wisdom and says, they glorified God that have given such what? Authority to men. And they did not know that he wasn't just a man. And so it's important that we see here that part of Christ's ultimate authority is authority over sin. Jesus and only Jesus has the power to forgive sin. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. He started there with the paralytic. Do you know why? What do you think, if you were that paralytic, what do you think your number one problem was? My guess would be you probably wouldn't think your number one problem was sin. You probably would think your number one problem is is that you can't walk and work and provide or even have a family. That's your number one problem, right? The very thing that we see. The thing that we see in this realm, the things that we are afflicted with every day, my foot that hurts all the time, my back that hurts when I turn wrong, my hair that is turning gray, my gut that is ever-increasing, Those are the things that are a problem, right? Because that's what I see all the time. No, my friend. Jesus starts with the biggest problem. And the biggest problem is sin. 
And so Jesus starts there. Because every other thing is going to be dealt with one day. But this can only be dealt with one way. It has to be dealt with through Christ and him crucified. And so it's paramount that we see that Jesus starts there with the paralytic. And brother or sister, he starts there with you. He starts there with me. He has to address the first things first. And so we see here in the text that Jesus doesn't just have authority regular, like kingdom authority, to do these things. He has ultimate authority, and that's shown over sin. Now, in the very next verses, you're going to see in your copy of God's Word, I don't have up here on the screen, that he's going to call Matthew, which is cool because who wrote this book? Matthew, this guy, right? And so probably what happens, in my opinion, is this guy spends his whole time with Jesus and then starts recording things and has half the journal after this time period and then goes back and says, what happened with this whole thing before I came on the scene? And then so he goes and then gets this information kind of after the fact and writes this down for us. But anyway, he calls Matthew as a tax collector. There's questions about Jesus dealing with sinners and not dealing with sinners. There's questions about fasting. John's disciples come and talk to him if they should fast or not fast, and he talks about that. You can read over that. But this is an authority over sin issue. And then we go to the next thing because there's a consequence of sin, right? In Genesis, it talks about this. The consequences of sin are what? If you know your Bibles, are death. And we so often think it just means that we get to occupy a place in the cemetery, but really it means separation from God, a spiritual death, a death for eternity, not just a physical death. And so in the second part, of course, if you're following along, you would see that he has ultimate authority even over death. And so we're going to see that in this next section. So if you would turn a little bit forward to verse 18 in chapter 9, it says, while he was saying these things about fasting, to John's disciples, okay? While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler. Now, we're going to know from Mark 5 and Luke 8, right, these gospel harmony here, that this is Jairus, or Jairus, or however you pronounce it. I don't know. Google it and find the thing or whatever. And Google's probably wrong, too. Anyway, Jairus, who is a synagogue leader. So that's this ruler. So when we think of ruler, I automatically think of king or governor or something like that. What this was is kind of a, a, a local ruler of religious things in the synagogue. Does this make sense? So Jairus is a Jew, and he's over the synagogue. And he comes and he kneels before Jesus. Some commentators say that this is a sign of worship. It very well could be. If nothing else, it's definitely a sign of honor. It's a sign where this man recognizes his humility and is humbled, and just thinking through it, this probably didn't happen to him very often because he's the leader of a synagogue in the Jewish community. He's probably giving a lot of honor from other people all the time. And so here he comes, and just like the leper, kneels before Jesus. You see, Scripture is true when it says God gives grace to the humble but is opposed to the proud. And so this ruler, Jairus, comes to Jesus, kneels before him in the same posture as the leper, and he comes to him. Why? Because as a parent, it doesn't matter the size castle you have, how many horsepower your hemi is, 
When your kids are sick, your whole world falls apart. And Jairus, you know, what does it gain a man to, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? You know, sometimes, and I didn't understand this when I was growing up, you know, my mom would say, or I would say, I love you, and she would say, I love you more. And I'm like, yeah, okay, it's all equal until I had kids, <laughs> right? And I'm like, you don't, you don't get it. <laughs> like, and so Jairus comes and he says, my daughter has just died. Now, in the other Gospels, there's a little difference here, and, and I think Matthew kind of cuts to the quick. The other one says that, you know, that she is about to die or, or that uh, he was met on the way and said, your daughter has died or, or whatever. But the fact of the matter is that Matthew is trying to get to, and that I'm trying to get to this morning because we're in the book of Matthew, is that that doesn't stop Jesus either. So I don't know why Jairus would have think that, that at this point Jesus would have this kind of power. This is the first time that Jesus is going to raise somebody from the dead. There's another one later at Lazarus. But I guess in our own human thinking, you know, giving sight to the blind and raising somebody from the dead, those are two totally different calibers. But he comes, and he has faith, and he trusts, and he says, my daughter has just died. Even though that's the case, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Why in the world would he believe this? And also, there are some people out there, some non-believers, some skeptics who will say, well, she probably wasn't really dead. Maybe she had fainted. You give zero credit then to these people back then. Can you not know the difference between a breathing human and a not breathing human just because they didn't have internet? Give me a break. When her body is cold and she is not breathing, she is clearly dead. It's not like she's the first one. We've never seen anyone die before. No, she was dead. And then in verse 19... Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. He did not say, oh, I can't do that. He did not say, hey, that's a little past my power, my authority, my control. He was not jarred by it in the least, and he wasted no time. And then what happens here is this great narrative, and I want you to study this on your own. This is this narrative of this woman who was afflicted for like 12 years of hemorrhaging, and she had this kind of superstitious belief about Jesus, which, by the way, we can all relate to sometimes too. Don't we sometimes think superstitiously about Christ, if we're just honest? And she says, all i got to do is just touch the hem of his garment, and that's going to be enough to, to heal him. It is her faith that heals him in Christ, not the touching of his fancy clothes or whatever, which Jesus probably didn't have fancy clothes. Anyway, so think about Jairus at this point. Do we have any time to waste here? Jesus, why are you wasting your time with this woman who should be an outcast, who's not even allowed in the synagogue because she's ritually unclean and can't come in? Not only that, but after you do this, you make her publicly tell her testimony, which, by the way, if you think about it, might be embarrassing, but for her, was one of the best and most merciful things Jesus could do because society knew that she was unclean, and by this conversation, she would be, in her own right, brought back from the dead brought back to spiritual life where she could now participate in her faith and in her religion. Now she could go to the synagogue again. For 12 years she was disallowed. So we go on into verse 23. 
And it says, and when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw flute players and crowds making a commotion. There is actually a rule in traditional law, and this is what it says. I don't know exactly the quote. You can look that up. I'm sorry that I didn't have it in my notes here. You can trust me if you want or not. But it says, that the, at, this, at this wake or whatever, they should have not less than two fluters and one wailing woman. So that's the bare minute. So even the poor families, they would have two flute players and one wailing woman that would come and they would make this show and pomp and circumstance for this. So this is a ruler, so he probably had more. That's the assumption. Scripture doesn't say that. But we know there was at least two and one wailing woman. And so when Jesus came into this house, he, sent, he, he saw them making this commotion. This is what they were paid to do. And he told them, go away, for this girl's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And why? Because we know what death is. They wouldn't have been there had she not been dead. There's no guess about this. And he uses this word sleeping. And that's where some people will say, see, Jesus knew. He was a better physician than the other people there, and he just knew that she was asleep. No, my friend. Jesus used the word sleepy because he has authority over death. Because in Jesus' eyes, going to the grave is no different than taking an afternoon nap for a 12-year-old little girl. And so he says, she's just asleep. So you guys need to get out of here. Go find some other wake to go visit. I've got work to do. So when the crowd had been put outside, he went and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And of course, this report went out through the whole district, of course. Because if you couldn't keep the other things quiet, you're not going to keep a resurrection quiet. Not in a small, tight-knit communication district of, of Jerusalem or the area that they're at, right? So Jesus didn't come for the pomp and the circumstance. He, he didn't do this for everybody to see. However, it did get out there. He didn't just wake this little girl up. He brought her back from the dead. I bet. I bet that 12-year-old little girl became a Christian after the resurrection. (laughs) You know, we don't know that, but it's like, what, you know, you can't talk her out of it for sure. And so we see in this, as I kind of began this, we see restoration. We see grace because of his authority. We see peace because of his authority. We see restoration. Restoration to a broken home. Restoration for those in broken hope. Restoration for the blind men that we didn't cover with broken bodies. But last and most importantly to you this morning, restoration to a broken world. Because if you want to backtrack with me a little bit to To this next part, we're going to see that Jesus' ultimate authority is not just over sin, not just over death. But the reason that those things ultimately apply to you today is because he has ultimate authority to save. And I want to say he has ultimate authority to save you and to save me. And so if you're like me and you ever have doubts about salvation, it's not up to you. And praise God that it's not. Praise God that it's up to Christ. 
who has ultimate authority. Satan has no authority to accuse. We have no authority to undo. And our doubt or our struggle does not change the fact that Christ has ultimate authority. And so we'll see that in this section as Matthew is brought in. Jesus passed on from there. And a man called Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus calls him and says, follow me. Now, everybody hates tax collectors. Nobody wants to hang with the tax collectors except for the other tax collectors, right? It's like that one table when you went to high school. You know the table. With those kids that sat at that table, and nobody sat with those kids but those other kids. And by the way, shame on you, right, for knowing exactly what I'm talking about. Shame on me, too. But nobody wanted to hang with the tax collectors, okay? And so Jesus comes past, and he sees Matthew, and he says, follow me. Also, as a tax collector, it was a lucrative position. It might have been an unfriendly position, but it was lucrative. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your master, does your teacher, eat with tax collectors and sinners? Doesn't he know? Doesn't he know nobody's supposed to do this? I thought he was holy. I thought he was righteous. I thought he knew the word of God. I thought he was a patriotic Jew. Why is he hanging with these traitors to Judaism, these Roman thugs that are here to collect from us and steal from us? Why is Jesus doing this? And this is where a couple weeks ago when we talked about what it means to be a real follower of Christ, we see that he says to this, go, uh, but, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Praise God for that. That Jesus is ultimate authority. All authority in heaven and on earth, he uses it to forgive sin, to bring back the dead, and to save sinners of whom you and I can claim with Paul, I am the foremost. And so like Paul in the book of Romans, he says, who will set me free from this body of death? Christ. Y'all, that was an amen spot right there. I'll train you. It's fine. And then, oh, where am I at? What happened? 13. Go and learn what this means. Did I did we do that? Whatever. We're going to move on. Stop. Okay. So then after that, as we go all the way down to the end of the chapter, here's what it says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, which is this. Jesus has ultimate authority. The king has come, the son of man is here. He is fully God and fully man. God has given him all authority in heaven and earth, and his authority, he uses this ultimate authority to save sinners and bring them back from the grave. This is the good news of the gospel, my friend. This is why Christ came. 
And so this is good news not for them only in that day, but good news for you this day. Because he went through preaching this, healing disease and affliction, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And that is why you hear this message today. And that is why your grandmother and your grandfather heard this message and why your great-great-grandfather and grandmother heard this message. And that is why, until Jesus comes back, your great-great-great-great-grandchildren will hear this message. And that is why Jesus' ultimate authority should matter to you. So we see that his ultimate authority is going to be to give grace to the outcasts of whom we are. That his ultimate authority is to come to give peace to the disturbed of whom we are and restoration to the broken of whom we are. And his authority is over sin and death for the power of salvation. Which leads us at the end of our message today, which leads you to have to answer one of three responses. The proud, the religious leaders of the day, the scribes, the Pharisees, would reject this authority. I'm, what I say? The proud. The crowd of this day would enjoy the benefits of this authority, yet be complacent fence-sitters. And then his disciples would renounce everything else because of this authority and faithfully follow this God-man, Christ Jesus. And so who is this and how can he speak with authority? He is Christ, the Son of the Most High God. Why does this authority matter? Because without his salvation, we are damned and doomed to eternity in hell and separation from God. And what does this mean for you, brother or sister? This means one of two things. This means either you are saved or you are not. It is my prayer that this message would be for you or for your loved ones so that you might come as the paralyzed man to Jesus and he might say to you, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your only begotten Son to rule over us and consecrating him as our divine, all-powerful King. Lord, we praise you that it is in his hand we are safe against all attempts of the devil and every scheme of the world. God, we ask that you would grant us to submit to his ruling authority and so conduct ourselves in accordance with his divine will so as to remain ever under his safe and watchful eye. And Jesus, we praise your name, for you are Lord. And you are not just a distant ruling king, but our very personal Savior. And by your Spirit, we are given power of sanctification through the purchase of your blood. So preserve us, we pray, until that great day when we will be gathered together eternally 
into your blessed, everlasting, heavenly kingdom. And it's in that prayer we, we ask humbly in your name. Amen. Listen, thank you all for coming today.